1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'll be reading the first five verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, please give your full attention, this is God's word. And I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. But I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So for the reading his word. We continue this morning in this letter um, of Paul, this first letter that we have, 1 Corinthians. And as we see, there is a connection, there's a common theme, there are definitely definitely things that we see carried over into today, um, particularly the methods and practices that we see so common in churches uh, today are greatly varied. Um, And honestly, quite creative. But sadly, many are a product of uh, the wisdom of this age uh, rather than the age to come, which is what Paul was so adamantly uh, talking about in his writings. And now, in our day, like in the first century, too many rely on the things of man, on the things of this age, of this world. Um, And that seems, uh, makes sense in some regard, Uh, It seems safe. It seems controlled to do so. We can handle it. Uh, We can handle things. We can control and manipulate things and people. Uh, But we, uh, like they, need to rest our faith in the power of God. I need to rest our faith in the power of God. And that simple message is the powerful message, not of man's power, but of God's power. And it's in this message that we see uh, that God is sovereign Uh, that Christ is sufficient, and that salvation is indeed sweet. Uh, Salvation is sweet. God is sovereign, Christ is sufficient, and salvation is sweet. And so first let's look at uh, the sovereignty of God again. Uh, Paul had been telling the Corinthians of the power and the wisdom of the message of the cross uh, over and against uh, the man's power and the wisdom of man. Um, And the Corinthians who heard that message and were converted by the power of the Holy Spirit, they got it. Those Corinthians saw the cross for what it truly is. God reconciling the world to himself through Christ. And the Corinthians were offered that exact thing, if you recall, of the, the argument and the discussion leading up to this point. They were offered the very thing that the Greeks and that the Romans said they loved. Wisdom. Wisdom. Paul offered them true wisdom. True wisdom. The wisdom of God. And there's an irony here, right, as we look at this. There's an irony. They loved wisdom, they said. Paul held out for them true wisdom. And in the preaching of the cross, of the cross, the wisdom of God in dealing with man's sin is revealed. But the Greeks, what? They wanted nothing to do with it. They wanted nothing of it. They didn't want to hear it. Paul's message didn't meet their needs according to their wisdom. They didn't like it. 
like so many today, don't like it. It doesn't meet their needs. They claim that they loved wisdom. But through the message of the cross, God showed that their pursuit of wisdom, their pursuit of wisdom, was simply a way to reject right, the one truth that people don't want to face, the guilt that they have before a holy God. And so our text this morning, as we look and get into it, it begins uh, in verses 1 and 2, uh, where Paul goes through his own history uh, with the Corinthian church there. Uh, again, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty wisdom, a lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Right, And so those first, that, that first word there in Greek, it's two words in English, and I, and it's fronted and it's emphatic in a way. And what he's doing is uh, he's telling them, he's including himself with them and his experience with them. And he's saying that he didn't come as an eloquent orator or a professional sophist, impressing them with polished, personality-driven driven preaching. He didn't come to them with sage advice that was the flavor of the day or with worldly solutions to the riddles of life like the sages, like the sophists of the day, like the philosophers of the day. No, Paul came to the Gentiles, the sent one, the apostle to the Gentiles, proclaiming the testimony about what God had done in Christ to rescue sinners from sin's guilt and from sin's power. And yes, this preaching of Christ crucified confused it offended. It was a stumbling block, remember, a death trap, he's told them. But Paul preached it nevertheless. Paul preached this message of Christ and him crucified. And we think, oh, how offensive in our day. That's offensive. Why would you do that? Don't you know, Paul, that's not cool to make people feel uncomfortable. That might make somebody upset. But Paul knew he knew that the greater offense was to be quiet. Paul knew who he was. Paul knew that he'd been, what he'd been rescued from. And he knows that it's through the gospel alone that God calls his people to faith. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Remember, he says in Romans, it is the power of God unto salvation. He's not ashamed of this gospel. And so he preaches the cross and the empty tomb, even though it would cause offense. There is an offense of the gospel. That's the way that it works. Right? And so that's a boldness. That's a courage that we can and should learn from for ourselves as well. And so the apostles' preaching was substitution, it was a substitutionary atonement, right? That Jesus died in the place of sinners. Christ died in the sinner's place. And that he bore in his body the wrath of God. And that God gloriously raised him from the dead. And by it, what? He proved his victory over sin and the consequences of sin. Paul's preaching was the gospel. was the gospel that Christ commanded him to preach. That he ordained him and sent him to preach. And why is that? It's because through that message, through this message, Christ crucified. It's through that message that the Holy Spirit demonstrates that wisdom and that power of God which is displayed preeminently in the salvation of sinners. And so by way of review, what are the facts of the gospel? What, is, what are the points of the gospel in simple form? 
right? Can you, can you point, if someone were to ask you, could you point to a place in your Bible uh, where you would go to to lay this out for somebody? You don't have to answer that, but uh, there's a good place you can go. Go to the end of this book that we're looking at, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Um, and Paul says, in very summary fashion, and this is a good, you know, this is a good place for us, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, uh, he says this, this very thing that he delivered to them, that he gave to them. Uh, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles and lastly of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Right? And so these very things, these very things, Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. All in accordance with the scriptures. This is a good, simple, uh, memorable summary of what's going on um, in the gospel. And it's good for sharing your own faith. As someone, perhaps you're in conversation with, asks you, about what is it that you believe? What is this gospel? And quite frankly, these are good points to remember the core of the gospel uh, for preaching to yourself as well. Right? Reminding yourself of what Christ did, the work of Christ, dying for you, that he was dead and buried and he was raised again by the power of God, that same power that resides in you as you belong to him. Uh, and so we explain to people that we are sinners. Right? Man is sinful by nature. That's the point of the law, uh, by the way. Uh, Romans 3.20 says that. It's the point of the law to reveal your sin. And then we give the history of, of Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, um, as we find them in the Gospels. And so wonderfully and amazingly, it's through that simple message that God cho chose to call those Greeks there to faith. Faith in the very thing that they before counted as foolish. It's wonderfully and amazingly. It's through that same simple message that God chose to call people, uh, chooses to call people today, even as he used that message to call you uh, to faith in him. And so God is wonderful, brothers and sisters. God is amazing. God is powerful. He is strong. He is mighty. He is merciful. He is good. He is just. He's a just God. And God is sovereign. And so that's something uh, absolutely that we see in this, this text this morning. And then next we see that Christ is sufficient, right? Christ is sufficient. We notice many things as we look at, at Paul's writings. This man, um, as one untimely born, as he said in chapter 15. Uh, this man whom God used to pen two-thirds uh, of, the, of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Spirit. And we see as we look at these writings, there are many things that are absent, that are conspicuously not there in regard to Paul's uh, what Paul gives us, what he lays out for us. Paul doesn't give what his audience expected in that culture. Right? This is one of the things that we see there. Paul didn't tell culturally relevant riddles to them. Uh, he didn't tell, tell them what one of you call, uh, uh, referred to as preacher stories. Right? We don't see that in the, uh, in the writings of Paul. Uh, Paul didn't give irrelevant anecdotes um, to pad his messages. He didn't make dozens of cultural references in his preaching, in his writings. Uh, he didn't do other things 
that are designed to hold their attention. In that day, you may know, if you've done some reading on this, or you may have heard in the past, uh, there were specific clothes uh, that an orator would wear. Uh, Paul didn't do that. Uh, Paul also didn't add to his message with other trendy or faddish means or methods. We see much of that in our churches today. Uh, In that day, there were also precise movements and mannerisms and postures uh, that speakers would use. Right? It was an art form. It was a performance. And Paul didn't do that either. Rather, Paul was obsessed. He was obsessed singularly on that particular message, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's the message of the cross. And the centrality of the cross in Christian preaching is vital. It was then, and it is today. It is the centrality of the cross because it is God's plan. It is God's, the sovereign God's sovereign plan. And because Christ is sufficient, those other things are not needed. God knows best. Right? It's his way is best. Christ is sufficient. Given our bent, right? our fleshly bent towards flesh and our bent towards earth and our earthly, fleshly, physical focus that we have by virtue of our sin nature and the culture that we live in, we love to be entertained. We love to be entertained. The Corinthians did too. The Corinthians did as well. Many preachers today, even in Presbyterian or Reformed circles, many are plagued with this addiction to entertainment and this addiction to cultural relevancy. Or having a long beard and a bow tie or a certain haircut or certain glasses. Right? You've all seen this. Or being so submerged in the latest faddish cultural movements or flavors of the day. So much so that the thing that's supposed to be the main thing gets cloudy and gets pushed to the back or lost in the forest of trends and hipness. We don't like to be confronted. We don't like to be confronted with our own sins. We are a proud people in our flesh. The old-fashioned word is haughty. We're haughty, arrogant. There's a uh, a pride about us that we have. We don't like to be told what we can't do. We don't like to be told that we're sinners. We surely don't like to be told that there's absolutely nothing that we can do to rescue ourselves from the predicament in which we find ourselves. We don't like in our flesh the idea that we are helpless. That is anathema to us as people, especially to us as Um, Westerners in the 21st century. We despise the idea that we're helpless and that we need to trust in another, someone else, Jesus, to accomplish for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. But that is exactly the way that God ordained it to be. It's offensive. It's foolish. It's weak, they say. But it's true. It's glorious. Christ is sufficient, brothers and sisters. And this Jesus, what God the Father did through His only begotten Son, crucified on a Roman cross that Friday afternoon so long ago, decades even before Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians, that very event has consequences and ramifications that come down through the centuries for those who hear it. The same message from Paul. 
for them and for us, right? Then and now, the preaching of Christ crucified calls his people to faith. And it moves them to abandon their own righteousness and to admit and accept their sin. Abandon their sin as they accept Christ Jesus. His payment for their sins as their only way to glory. No added elements to salvation. Christ is sufficient. Not works. No special effects in Paul's preaching. No stylized wardrobe. No methods of eloquence or rhetoric or logic that were the flavor of the day. In the cross, we read, the wisdom and the power of God are manifested. In the cross, the message of the cross. In Paul's message, because it was Jesus, it's what he commanded and ordained it to be. It's what Paul will preach. He will preach Christ crucified and nothing else. None of that stuff. And so in preaching... And by extension, by the way, for us all in our witnessing, in our discussing, in our sharing our faith, is to be focused on the gospel. On the gospel. Those very things. Christ died for sinners. He was buried. He was raised according to the scriptures. That's where the power and wisdom of God, we read, are manifested. It's not manifested as someone uh, has wisely put. Um, It's not manifested in tips for practical living. Right? Moralistic preaching. It's not manifested in therapeutic preaching. God wants you to be happy. It's not manifested in the wisdom, uh, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, in motivational preaching as well. You get out there and you, you, you be a, a boss for Jesus. Right? It's not moralistic or therapeutic or more motivational preaching, nor in the wisdom of this world. Right? Not in sages or the eloquence of orators. Right? Great communicators. God chose something else to demonstrate his incredible power and wisdom. And that is the preaching of the message of Christ crucified. It is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. And it's in that message that Christ's righteousness, his holiness, and redemption are revealed for the world to see. And when we read the letters of Paul to the Corinthians, which we're going to do, read through these two letters... We learn much about Paul, about his message and his manner, and about Paul himself. And we know from his writings that he was, uh, not just the Corinthian letters, but all uh, his other writings, um, we know that he was repeatedly attacked for a number of things. Um, And we learn that the things that the Corinthians were accustomed to, what they were used to from the culture from which they came, the eloquence, the rhetoric, the elocutionary, elocutionary styling and performances. Paul wasn't doing any of that. And they didn't like it. It's not what they were. They were used to that. And they wanted that. And he wasn't doing that. They're criticizing him for it. And Paul, you know, wasn't especially uh, eloquent or impressive or charismatic or the leader type uh, that, they would, that they were used to. Um, and it's interesting. We, if you look later in chapter 10, go to, go to chapter 10 of uh, 2 Corinthians we see something of this. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 10, 10 uh, says this. For they say his letters 
are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Right? And so he's, we see right there, I mean, this is a declaration of uh, they're, they're thinking of what Paul was. Right? He's, he writes a, a, a good talk, but he's pathetic in person. He's weak. Or in our text this morning, as we go on in verses 3 and 4, 1 Corinthians 2, 3 and 4, he says this, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. He's declaring it himself. Uh, and what are, we, what are we to make of that? What is he talking about there? Well, Paul was perhaps ill or sick physically with something. Um, and he was very much weary in his body when he was with the Corinthians previously, when he first came to them and spent that time with them. And we know this from Acts 17 and 18. Right? Paul had gone through a lot. He'd been around. He'd been preaching in Berea and in Thessalonica and in Athens. And then he has to flee for his life, we read. And that's where he goes to Corinth. And when he got there, you better believe he needed rest. He was weary. Paul's point is that in all of this weakness... It's the message of Christ crucified. It's not what Paul's doing or how he's presenting it. It's not his personality-driven message. Paul's point is that in all of his weakness, God's power is demonstrated. Christ is sufficient. Paul had just explained. If you go back to verse 30 of 1 Corinthians, Paul had just explained in punctuated, glorious manner who they were in Jesus. And what Jesus was now to them. Again, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. And because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so it's not entirely new. This thing that we see again and again, not only in the writings of Paul, it's not new that God uses feeble messengers to convey his powerful message, right? To highlight that power and his wisdom and his wonder. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this or made this connection, but there's a definite parallel between the Apostle Paul, a very key figure, a very key uh, messenger um, in the New Testament, and Moses, right? Moses of the Old Testament. Right? You think about the Old Testament. Who was the man in the Old Testament? It's Moses. Moses, he's the key figure. He's the greatest figure. Uh, in the Old Testament. The mouthpiece of God, right? He too was not a man of eloquence. Right? He's, uh, he's called upon to confront Pharaoh. Do you remember this happens? And he's terrified to do this. And do you remember what he says to, to the Lord? Uh, in Exodus 4, verse 10 and 11, it says, But Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And what did the Lord respond to him? And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And you see, God's ability to accomplish his will is not contingent upon man's talent or his ability. It turns out that Moses, his lack of speaking ability, made it even all the more clear that God's power doesn't depend on man at all. 
or on man's efforts. This was the case for Moses, and it was the case for Paul, and frankly, it's the case for all of us, for you as well. God will accomplish his will, even when weak and unimpressive people like you and I tell others about his way and about Jesus Christ. So Paul wasn't what the world thought of uh, a speaker or a leader should be in that world and certainly true today in this world. Uh, But Paul knew and he centered on the gospel of Christ crucified. Christ crucified uh, is the message that he centered upon. Uh, And he knew that it was that message, in that message that God was the power to save sinners. And so he says in verse 4, right, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. The spirit and power. And how much you've thought about that, or what is he talking about there? Lots of theories uh, abound, particularly on a certain branch of the Christian family tree of what this is. But Paul here is not speaking uh, of the Spirit's demonstration uh, of power as signs and wonders. Right? That's, a, that's, that's something that's put forward quite a bit. That's not what he's talking about here. Uh, these signs and wonders certainly did take place in, uh, in the apostolic era as confirmatory to the word as it went forward, to the gospel as it went forward. Uh, and Paul indeed will discuss this as he goes forward in chapter 12, uh, some of these signs and wonders. Uh, but when we read in Acts 18... Paul's going to Corinth, to this church, to to, to Corinth. There's no mention of signs and wonders. We have nothing in this text to lead us to believe that the demonstration of the Spirit's power are signs and wonders. And it's an odd kind of contradiction uh, that the charismatic branch of the Christian family tree, uh, that branch that self-professedly says that it desires ardently the Spirit and it desires to be spiritual, turns out that they are the most prone to and guilty of uh, this physical focus, this being flesh-centered. And that is that it's very man-centered to downplay the ordinary, mundane things of the Christian life. Not only to emphasize, but design and to fabricate through worldly means, sensational, fleshly frenzy and practice. And even in the first century, in the foundation-laying stage of redemptive history, uh, in the apostolic times, particularly in Pentecost, we think, right, the mind-blowing wonder of that time, right, the wonder of that time in Pentecost was not that people in Pentecost spoke in tongues. The wonder was that it was through the preaching of mere men, Peter the fisherman in this case, through his preaching The wonder was that God, through that, converted 3,000 people. That's a wonder. It's amazing. And that people are saved through simple, ordinary men preaching a simple message today is a wonder as well. It remains a wonder. What Paul is speaking of here in verse 4, that his message was in demonstration of the Spirit and and of power, He means that the Spirit's power is manifested and that people who were dead in their sins and trespasses 
were able to, uh, uh, unable entirely to comprehend God by their own wisdom and means. That they have been united to Christ through faith as he gives faith and he gives them life. That is the powerful work of the Spirit. It's a powerful work. The dead rise to life. This is the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Right? What greater manifestation of the Spirit's power could there be than that the dead are made to live? Those who were children of wrath and dead in their sins, they're given new life and granted faith in Christ through the preaching of the cross. That's phenomenal. That's sensational. That is power. Paul emphasized as we walk through this these short five verses, how his message did not come to them and how it did come. And then in verse five, he tells them why. Why it was the case that that's the way that it was laid out. It's so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Right? This, so this circles back to what we started in his discussion um, a number of weeks ago. Right? You, 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 the ability to empty the message of its power. Adding all these things to it. Obfuscating the clear power of God in his work through his word. Paul says, this is the way it happened. The way it had to happen. Why? So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Because Paul's preaching is not centered on human wisdom or human ways or eloquence or persuasion. Christian faith, rather, is centered on on and rests upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so our faith, brothers and sisters, your faith rests upon God's power. Not your own working, not your own keeping, not your own ways, not your own wisdom, but upon God's power. And gloriously. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead who resides in those whom he has given faith and united to Christ. Incredible. What a glorious truth. You want power? That's power. And so whenever the cross is proclaimed, God's promise and his practice is to call his people to trust that the sacrificial death of Jesus saves them from their sins. And so when we hear that message of Christ crucified, we're being summoned to trust God. We're being summoned by God to trust in Jesus Christ. To provide for us, to sustain us, to grow us. He's given us faith. He's been given for us. It's a message with power. It's a message with power. It is God who gives eternal life. And it is the same God who brings us through life into eternity with him. Christ is sufficient, dear Christian. Christ is sufficient. Christ is everything. And then finally, we look at the sweetness of salvation very briefly. This is simply that thing that was before you were made alive, before you were united to Christ, and you were of no interest to you. But now, to you who belong to Jesus, there's nothing sweeter, nothing sweeter in this life, in all of life. Salvation is preeminently sweet and lovely and precious and overwhelming. For you who love him, who belong to him, and whose life is hidden in him, in his life. 
we think about this regarding this salvation, this sweet salvation, we see the radical extent of God's love on display, placarded as it were, Paul says in Galatians. This work for you, I think about that for a moment. Meditate on this later, uh, this Lord's Day. The God of the universe, the God who created all things, he planned and he accomplished your salvation. Your salvation, yours personally. Do you live a life of thankfulness, overwhelmed by his love? Or are you like me and fail to appreciate this in your lives? We need to trust him. We need to trust him. We need to avail ourselves of the means of grace, those things that he's given us to grow us, to remind us, to bring us back, to strengthen us. His word, prayer, and the sacraments. Again and again and again. Because he knows we are weak, so he gave us things to do just that, to strengthen us in our weakness. We need to and will, by the power and the presence of of the Holy Spirit, reflect that truth in our lives as we do so. Christ died, brothers and sisters, that you would live. He died that you would live. He loves you. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you. What is sweeter than that? What is sweeter than that? Brothers and sisters, the question must come as well as we approach uh, close to this. Right, the whole, what God is doing here, it's not by this, but it's resting in the power of God. And so the question comes, are you resting in his power? Are you resting in the power of God? Are you resting in his love? Even today, even this morning. In what ways are you resting in your own power? Or your own, uh, or the power of man? In what ways are you doing that? Resting in things other uh, than God, than his power. Right? For many of us, it's politics, perhaps. Mastering every political argument on your side. You're resting in that? Or for some of us, maybe it's uh, mastery of theological data. Right? We love theology. I love theology. Many of you do as well. Theology is good to know, of course. It's imperative to know. But not to rest in. Because theology needs to drive you to the theos of the theology, of the God of theology. And good theology actually should lead you to rest in God's power. Not in the knowledge of that theology. Do you see what I mean? Perhaps you're resting in your financial portfolio, or your savings, or your power to earn, or your own health, or your own goodness. God forbid. Have you made yourself the standard you made yourself the standard of commitment against which to hold all others. Maybe you're resting in that. Maybe you're resting in that you've made yourself the standard of holiness against which to measure everyone else. Again, God forbid that that's the case. Are you resting in your own strength, or cleverness, or devotion? Or maybe, perhaps, you're not resting at all. Maybe you're overwhelmed with anxiety in worry. Maybe you're unable to rest and you're not resting at all. Maybe you're numbing yourself because you can't rest with work 
or business or drinking or pornography or projects or whatever it is. Maybe you're denying that you're not resting. Maybe guilt is keeping you from resting in Christ and in the power of God. If any of that rings true with you, listen closely, dear Christian. Listen closely. Christ is the King who reigns and protects and defends and subdues all of your enemies. Rest in Christ. Christ controls all the treasures of earth. And far beyond that, He is the greatest treasure of all. He is the greatest treasure. The pearl of infinite value. He is yours if you belong to Him. Rest in this treasure. Rest in this King. He satisfied the standard of perfect righteousness for you. He is powerful. Rest in Him. He is in control. And none of your worries can overcome Him or defeat Him. Rest from your anxieties as you rest in your Redeemer and your King. And those distractions that we set up for ourselves, those numbing agents, work, drugs, whatever it might be, they're all pretenders and liars. They're all pretenders and liars because they fail to deliver what they say that they will. They don't give you rest. None of them satisfy or give peace or give rest. Christ, dear Christian, must be the only satiation of your soul. Christ alone. Rest in Him. He paid the price you owed with the payment of His own life, of His blood. Your guilt has been dead, uh, dealt with in Christ. Christ has truly done all that, ever, that was or ever will be needed to s- secure your life with Him in glory. Rest in Christ. And even as you continue to worship Him now, and even as we descend from this meeting place with Him as His people, you go resting in your faithful and powerful Savior who loves you and who delights in your receiving and resting in Him alone for all of your life. And when that world that you go back into which is in such need of true rest, when it asks you from where your rest and peace and joy comes from, you have an answer for them. You have an answer for them, and you give them that same message of the cross, a message of Christ and Him crucified, that God used to give you faith and life. And do so trusting that same God who had victory over your guilt and sin and rebellion. You trust that same God with the outcome of that message. You rest in him. And in it all, give him praise and honor and blessing.